Thank you, praise team, for leading our singing this morning. Before we begin, just a few words. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to Ken Hansen and to his team. The room looks great, doesn't it? Let's just say thank you to him. Second, I want to say thank you to you, church, and to our deacon body, and especially to uh, Tony Carter and Rusty Raleigh, who uh, kind of take over and manage the entire uh, Thanksgiving gift basket. It, it wouldn't happen without those two guys. It wouldn't happen without the deacon body making deliveries, and it wouldn't happen without you, church, bringing the, the goods, the, the non-perishable food items, so that we can bless I don't know, 125 or more people uh, with a Thanksgiving meal. So we're grateful for you. Thank you so much. And then I also want to say thank you for praying for me. I, like, I used to think I was the pastor here and I knew what was happening in the services. Somehow I didn't know that was going to happen. And there's been several things where I had no idea this year where the, where the staff has made decisions. And I'm grateful for them. <laughs> but... That was a surprise for me, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for praying. Uh, those of you who follow my Caring Bridge site know that uh, last week I had to go to the emergency room, and uh, during just what was a CT scan to see what was going on, they saw an inflamed node, and it could be inflamed for several reasons, and the PET scan will, uh, tomorrow morning, it's been moved to the morning, so tomorrow will be uh, an important step in kind of figuring out what's going on. It seems to me like a lot rides on this, so I'm praying and would ask you to join me in praying that this would be a uh, very explainable node, uh, responsive node to sickness or whatever else. I know a lot of you at the end of the sermon will probably be feeling the same way as that little kid right now. So... Anyway, thank you for praying. Turn your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel 19, if you will. 2 Samuel chapter 19. Okay, so uh, at Thanksgiving, you know what comes. If you see the commercials, you know that there are now, like, all these Christmas movies that are coming on, right? So you could pretty much turn on whatever channel you wanted, and you could probably find a Christmas movie. However, on Friday of this week, uh, just a couple days ago, uh, I don't remember what channel it was on, but they were showing the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It was a great break from uh, The Grinch and every other Christmas movie that you can watch. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, we kind of sat there and watched some of the movies. And, of course, the third installment in that trilogy is The Return of the King. And if you've seen the movie, you know that there's a lot of different storylines that are kind of all happening simultaneously. Frodo and Samwise are making the nearly impossible journey into the heart of Mordor so they can throw the ring into the lava there at the Mount of Doom. Gandalf and Legolas and others are taking cover at Minas Tirith and ultimately they'll battle there and all while that's happening Aragorn is making it known that he commanded the blade of Andrew and is the rightful heir to the throne of Isladur right so this is important because the person who is the king the return of the king and holds his blade also commands an army the dead men of Dunharrow who owed their allegiance to the king previous king 
because he betrayed them, betrayed the people of Gondor. So because Aragorn, Aragorn holds this sword and he is the rightful heir to the throne, he's able to command this army. And then at the end, he shows up just in time and he helps to win the big battle there against the, uh, the army of Sauron. Lots of characters and lots of action, but one thing is for certain. Aragorn is the undisputed king, and he would rule the kingdom. Now, we've been in First and Second Samuel for most of this year, and we've seen how God anointed David to be king, and David took kingship after Saul, and David has been the undisputed king. However, there's been a lot of complications in the kingdom. Some of them have been self-inflicted complications. Today, we're going to see what happens in the immediate aftermath of Absalom's death. We're going to see that David is going to return to Jerusalem as the king, but it's actually a bit more complicated than that. So we're going to draw out some principles as we look at this text. If you will, please stand as we read in God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 19, begin there, the second part of verse 8, and read through verse 15. 2 Samuel 19, beginning the second part of verse 8, reading through verse 15. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? The king sent, and King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring the king back? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both of you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Will you pray with me? Lord, now as we look to your word, and as we see David returning to Jerusalem, we pray that we would look to the true king, to Jesus, the one who has conquered sin and death, and the one who we, in whom we have everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. I can only imagine all the promises that Absalom made to all the people. Like a seasoned politician, Absalom won the hearts of the people of Israel, actually duped them into buying what he was selling. But now, whatever dreams those people had were, were dead. And they were buried under that same pile of rocks that Absalom's dead body lay under. So Absalom dead and gone, Israel now, we read here, returned home, confused 
and uncertain of what was next. And the text indicates that the people were divided. Verses 9 and 10 indicate that these people were arguing over what to do next. Some were pro-David, and they said, well, let, let's, let's bring him back. Let's make him king. We know that God had used him and that he had delivered us so many times in the past. But there was an anti-David division. We don't hear what they were saying, but we know like what they were saying. No, we don't want David as king anymore. He can't handle it anymore. He can't do this anymore. Beyond that, I guess, I bet that they wondered if David would respond or how he would respond to everything that had transpired, right? Would he seek to get even with the people who had sided with Absalom? Would he be cruel? Be he, would, be, would he be vindictive? Could he regain the confidence of all Israel and lead the people in truth? Or would he show favorites? Would he show favoritism? And all the while the northern tribes were arguing, there wasn't consensus in Judah either. So David sends his messengers to the elders of Judah to try to spur them on to get on board with his return. He appeals to pride. He appeals to his close family connection. And you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, David was from Judah, right? So why was there an issue? Why, why was that even a, a problem? Why, Judah should have just jumped on board. But remember, Absalom was proclaimed king, proclaimed himself king, had all the fanfare happen in Hebron, which was in Judah. So there was clearly an anti-David faction in his own hometown. And they too probably wondered, if they couldn't make the decision, how is David going to lead? How is David going to rule? But here's the question for us right now. Why did David reach out to the elders of Judah in the first place? And I think the answer to it corresponds to our first principle. First principle this morning, be proactive in pursuing peace and unity. Be proactive in pursuing peace and unity. Verse 11 indicates that for all the arguing in Israel, they had reached a decision. They were going to bring David back as the king, back to the palace in Jerusalem. So by sending word to the elders in Judah, David seems to be trying to get everybody on the same page. David seems to be trying to unify the kingdom. He seems to be trying to bring peace amongst the people there, the people of God. David was trying to unify. In fact, even by offering Amasa as the next commander of his army, he was showing that he wasn't about seeking revenge. He wasn't about seeking to get even with people who had been against him. Now, some may argue that this was a, a, a jab at Joab as well, who David had likely had enough of. And while that may be part of it, it seems very clear that David is throwing a bone to Judah. Why? Because Amasa is from Judah. He's saying, look, let's let this together. Amasa is going to be the commander of the army. We can, we can all come together in this. Now, according to verses 14 and 15, David's outreach to the elders of Judah worked, right? The people of Judah got on board with this and they went to Gilgal and they're ready to bring the king back across the Jordan in a coronation ceremony as he was headed back to Jerusalem. So all is good, right? Everyone's on the same page, right? No, actually not. Let's skip to verse 41. If you skip to verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and all his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? 
All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And all the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? We were, were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So what's happening here? Well, the men of Israel are jealous. They're frustrated. They feel threatened because the people of Judah have been the ones who have brought David across the Jordan, were involved, maybe planning, carrying out, executing the entire coronation ceremony. And the people of Israel felt left out. They're like, hey, we were on board with this first. This, we had already made this decision. And you guys were, you know, Johnny come lately's and we had to bring you in. And, then, and now what's going on? Now listen, as foolish and as silly as this seems, friends, Disunity has been caused by a lot more silly and unimportant things in life. The basic problem here is that the people did not trust each other and perhaps did not trust King David as well. And as insignificant as this issue may seem to us, you know, who crosses the Jordan with King David there are some insignificant things that can cause disunity in a church family. Author and researcher Tom Rayner notes things like arguing over whether the church should sing happy birthday to members each week causes disunity. Or who has access to the copy machine? Or who has access to certain rooms in the church? These are all documented things. Or if both the American flag and the Christian flag should be displayed in the sanctuary. Or, of course, the color of the new paint or the color of the new carpet. On and on, these things are ultimately not important things, but can cause incredible disunity and unrest in the life of a church. Now, some reasons are far more serious. Things like gossip. Things like self-righteousness. Things like self-centeredness, things like a hypercritical spirit that is never pleased and never content. And too often, friends, disunity is the result of failing to love one another and failing to care for one another and failing to have grace or show grace to one another. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians in chapter 4, Verses one through three, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Friends, if we lived that way, there would be no disunity. We may disagree on things, but it wouldn't lead us to bicker it wouldn't lead us to bitterness it wouldn't split things apart if we live this way we would be pursuing peace we would be pursuing unity because we would be concerned more about the needs of others than our own wants or our own likes we should be pursuing proactively peace and unity. Another issue is that we fail to follow scriptural instruction, right? We have disagreements with one another. We, we feel like we've sinned against one another or we have sinned against someone else and we've been wronged. 
then we don't go to each other and seek reconciliation. We don't follow the passages in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus says, look, if, if you know that you've wronged someone, then go to that person and, and make it right. We don't follow the passage in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus says, look, if, if someone's wronged you, go to that person. Go to that person and tell that person what's going on and, and seek to bring reconciliation to the relationship. Instead, too often, friends, we allow bitterness to take root in our hearts. We can be guilty of holding grudges. At times, we can spew out our dissatisfaction with the way things are to others, and then that gives them reason for offense. We complain about things. And friends, all of it is sinful. All of it. When we fail to seek peace and unity, and when we fail to follow what Scripture calls us to, we're living in sin, and we're jeopardizing the unity that Christ died to attain, the harmony that we ought to experience even as a church. I, I believe that some in this room may need to confess their self-serving agendas as sin and repent of, un, of, of their self-righteousness. Just as disunity can wreak havoc on a kingdom, disunity can tear a church apart. And some of us need to hear Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, that we should do all that we can to live at peace with one another. But the sad thing is, friends, and we see it in churches all across America, in this city, there will always be people who will not see their sin and will not seek to comply, submit their lives to Scripture. Well, the second principle to see from this text is that we, to be gracious, we should be gracious with our adversaries. Be gracious with your adversaries. In verses 16 through 40, David is crossing the Jordan and heading back to Jerusalem. And he is met by various people, much in the same way that he was met by people on his way out of the city. And in verses 16 through 23, Shimei, the man from the house of Saul who showed up as David was leaving and threw rocks and, and dirt and, and was cursing David and saying, you're getting exactly what you deserve because of, how, because of your blood guilt, your, your bloodthirstiness against the house of Saul. You're getting exactly what you deserve. Well, this man shows up again, but his tune is much different this time. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. And he said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on that day. My Lord, the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come, Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord, the king. So now Shimei, his, his tune is a lot different, isn't it? But the question is, was his apology and repentance sincere? Unlikely, in my opinion. It's more likely that he saw the writing on the wall and was trying to save his own skin. And it seemed that way to Abishai, right? One of the commanders of David's army. In fact, he saw right through and he said, let's just lop his head off. Let's take care of him right now. But David's response, 22 and 23, but David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zuria? 
that you should say this day, be as an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So David here promises not to kill this man who was his adversary, who had shown to be his enemy. David is showing grace to him, to a man that had been against, a man who had cursed David. He didn't have to. Shimei's actions previously had been treasonous. What we see is that David shows kindness and he holds back his judgment. He holds back judgment. Friends, Scripture calls us to be gracious to those who are against us. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for them, Matthew chapter 5. Paul tells us, Romans chapter 12, to do good to our enemies. And this isn't easy. In fact, this is one of the last things that any of us would want to do in that situation. What's easy is to want to get even. What's easy is to hold grudges. What's easy is to give people the cold shoulder. But what if we treated those who oppose us? I'm not even saying they're your arch enemy, right? I'm not even saying they're your adversary. I mean, this can be in the moment. People who oppose you. People you can't seem to get along with. Maybe a sibling. Maybe a brother or a sister. Or maybe a spouse, even in the moment. There's just disagreement. You're disagreeable. You're not treating each other with kindness and love. Or maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's someone who just, they they just seem to not like you. and, And nothing goes well in conversation with them. What if we just showed grace? What if we just showed kindness? What if instead of trying to get the upper hand, we just humbled ourselves and showed love? And we encouraged and we cared for. Why? Because Christ has loved us. Because God has shown us his grace and his mercy and his kindness when we didn't deserve it, when we opposed him. Friends, Jesus shows kindness to us, even those who are enemies, even those who are apart from him. I want you to listen in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, God has proven his love for us in giving of his son, in the giving of Jesus Christ who died for our sin. While we were his enemies, undeserving as we are, and now he shows us kindness and forbearance, and his patience is meant to bring us to repentance to recognize our sin, to recognize his glory, to recognize that there is life in Christ. But friends, even as verse five said, if there is not repentance, there will be God's judgment and wrath. If there is no repentance, there will be judgment and wrath. Jesus died in our place on the cross to take the wrath of God that we deserve. And when we understand God's great love and his great grace in our lives, We are motivated to turn from sin 
and to put our trust in Jesus. But if we reject Jesus, if we have not faith in the Son of God who died for us and rose again, then we will suffer God's wrath eternally because of our rebellion against him. Did David believe Shimei? Is that why he showed him mercy? Not completely sure, actually. But we do know that he withheld his judgment and he promised that he would not kill him. However, in David's closing words before he dies and he gives instruction to Solomon, he does encourage Solomon to take care of Shimei because of his treasonous, because of his actions against the king. If there is no true repentance, there will be judgment. Third, be loyal to the king. Be loyal to the king. Now, Shimei wasn't the only person to seek an audience with David as he was crossing the Jordan and returning to Jerusalem. In verse 24, we read that Mephibosheth came to the river Jordan to meet with David. He shows up unkempt as though he had been in mourning since David left Jerusalem the first time. Now, last we heard of Mephibosheth, you remember that the servant Ziba, who was supposed to be serving and caring for Mephibosheth, uh, told David that Mephibosheth wasn't there at the Jordan River on the king's way out because he felt like God was now returning the kingdom to his household. And you remember that Ziba played into David's emotions and tricked him. But now it's very clear here. At a, at a later date recorded for us here, though, Mephibosheth meets with David in Jerusalem. And listen to what he says in verse 26 through 30. David says, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Verse 26, he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were men were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all since my Lord, the king has come safely home. Mephibosheth here humbles himself and find satisfaction and joy in the fact that the king is returning to Jerusalem. Commentator Tim Chester suggests that based on Mephibosheth's words, it's clear that he was not after reward, that he was not after vindication, but primarily concerned with the king's honor. In other words, he was more concerned with King David's glory than his own plight. Now this does make us wonder, what was David really thinking? Who did he really believe? Did he believe Ziba? Did he believe Mephibosheth? Is that why he just cut it in half, split it 50-50? You guys have it here? Maybe. But while we'll never know David's motivation, author Peter Leithart suggests that David was testing Mephibosheth in the moment. Testing him to see what was he after? Did he just want what the king could give him? And if that was the test, then Mephibosheth would have passed. You keep it. I don't need anything. I'm just happy that you're back safely home. Well, next is Barzillai. This is the wealthy man who 
showed up with provisions for David and his army prior to going to battle against Absalom and the armies of Israel. In verses 31 through 40, this man shows up at the Jordan to affirm again his support and his commitment for King David. And David suggests that Brazilii accompanies him back to Jerusalem so that David can care for him for the remainder of his days. He can provide for him. Now, this man is nearly 80 years old or is around 80 years old, and he humbly requests of David that he be allowed to stay in his home where he will one day soon die in the city that his parents' graves are in. And what this shows us, I believe, about Barzillai was that he was not seeking reward from David. It wasn't about him being part of the king's entourage. It wasn't about him being part of... uh, the group that the king would be caring for and lavishing gifts on. He was loyal to David because David was the true king. Honestly, though, it wasn't just what Barzillai did not take advantage of. It was what he did with his own wealth that also shows his loyalty. Recall that he was a man who had some means. He used his own funds to provide for the king and to care for the army. The way that this man utilized his funds showed loyalty to the king. And we need to hear that. Most of us don't have a lot of funds. Most of us wouldn't say that we're rich people. However, we have plenty. And we have more than enough. And church, throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, there is an emphasis on sacrificial giving. There is strong teaching on what we are to do with the resources and the money that God has entrusted to us. Some of you understand this. And because you understand this, you are showing loyalty to the one true king in the way that you invest the resources that God has entrusted to you. You're giving to kingdom-minded and gospel-centered ministries and you're giving to support the ministries and the expense of your church. And, And because of that, Uh, You're showing your love and your loyalty to the one true and living God, to your Savior, Jesus Christ. And some of you hear this, but yet you still fail to invest the resources that God has entrusted to you in ways that honor him. You do not give to support kingdom-minded or gospel-centered initiatives. You're not giving to support the ministries and the expenses of your church. Instead, You're using the resources that God has entrusted you just for yourselves, to benefit yourselves. And Jesus warns us about what we do with our money. He tells us to stop storing up earthly treasures and to instead store up treasures in heaven, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. And this has everything to do with what we do with what he has entrusted to us. Beyond that, Paul is very clear that God expects that his people will contribute joyfully and thoughtfully and sacrificially and systematically to ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Now hear me say this. At the end of the day, what you do with what God has entrusted to you is between you and God. But don't believe that you will not be held accountable for what you do with it you will be held accountable. And I don't know what that looks like for you or for me, but we will be held accountable for what God has entrusted to us. 
Two more thoughts this morning, we'll be done. Be certain the end never justifies the means. Be certain the end never justifies the means. Chapter 20 recounts the rebellion of Sheba. Listen to verses one and two. Now there happened to be there, that's as David is on his journey back to Jerusalem, a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and he said, what, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now, notice in verse one that the while the king was crossing here the Jordan, a worthless man, this troublemaker from the tribe of Benjamin, someone from the northern tribes, from Israel, started stirring up trouble. So verse two there where it says that all the men of Israel, it probably means to the, the half who were opposed to David, they all left and they all went home arguing against David. The rest of this chapter records for us the steps that David took to squash this insurrection. As promised, David goes to Amasa and instructs him to call the men of Judah together. He, he is seeing him as the new commander of the army. Go, go and, and get the men of Judah. Go and let's get the army together and let's go take care of this. But for some reason, Amasa is delayed. So David goes to Abishai, who we've read about multiple times in this, and he recruits him to get the job done. Well, Joab, good old Joab, gets wind of this somehow and gets involved. And on the way, as Abishai is leading the army to go and find Sheba, Amasa shows up. They run into him, and Joab, under the pretense of friendship, kills Amasa. And he leaves his body there, bloody, wallowing in the middle of the street, and he starts to intimidate the people. Okay, all who want to follow Joab and King David get in line and let's go take care of this. Let's go deal with this. Well, it works. It works. The people now are following Joab once again and they track down Sheba at a northern town called Abel of Beth Makkah. And Sheba's rebellion at this point seems to have puttered out because now it's like only his own kinsmen are with him and he, he hides in this city, he hides in the wall and, and he there is seeing Joab's army come and Joab is there and Joab's about to take over this city. Well, there is a woman from this city who kind of stands up and says, hey, what's going on? So Joab kind of says, hey, this is what's taking place. And she says, hold on a minute. She runs away, she comes back, and the next thing we know is, jo uh, is, is that Sheba's head is being tossed over the wall. Like, end of rebellion right there, she took care of it, or she had it taken care of. Well, Joab was successful, but he was also wickedly sinful in the way that he went about everything that he did. And when we consider righteousness, friends, we need to remember that it's not just the results that matter. It's how we got there that matters. This means that children and students, you may obey your parents, you may listen to what they say, but you may have a poor attitude the whole time you're doing what they've instructed you to do. That's not pleasing to God. It may mean that we as uh, employees 
take instructions from our employer and we do what we have to do, but we're not joyful or we're not, we don't have a good attitude about it. And that's not pleasing to God. Joab may have accomplished what David ultimately wanted done, but Joab proved once again that he was a treacherous and sinful person. Righteousness matters. Righteousness matters. And the way that we go about living our lives, the motivations that we have for obeying and for listening matter. Finally, be warned. Rebellion against the king will be punished. Be warned. Rebellion against the king will be punished. Sheba rose up and rebelled against the king, against God's anointed. He may have thought he had good standing to do so. He may have even had some supporters. But in the end, he received what he deserved. And the same is true for everyone in this room, friends. There is one king, and his name is Jesus. And God's word is clear that all those who rebel against him will be punished. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. This is an eternal death in a lake of fire called hell. And sin is every word, every action, every attitude, and every thought that goes against God's will and God's ways. And the Bible is clear that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. There's not a person in this room, and there is not a person anywhere who can stand before God declaring himself or herself to be innocent. No one. We're all guilty. And we're all deserving of God's judgment. But there is hope. The true King Jesus, out of love, willingly took the punishment that we deserved. Dying in our place and rising again on the third day. In his perfect life, in his substitutionary death, and in his resurrection from the dead, there is forgiveness of sin. There is perfect standing with God. And there is eternal life for all who will humble themselves and who will put their faith and their trust in King Jesus. And this is available to anyone in this room who will recognize their sin and who will put their hope in Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? Have you experienced God's forgiveness Do you see your sin and are you ready to confess your sin and to to cry out to God for forgiveness in Christ? This morning, you can know eternal life. This morning, you can know the forgiveness of sin. In our time of invitation here in just a moment when we sing, we'll be here to receive you. If you have questions about the gospel, we would love to connect with you about what it means to follow Christ and have the hope of eternal life. If you have prayer requests, if you need prayer, if you are, um, if, if, if you're struggling with something else going on in your life, we would love to know and be able to connect with you and pray with you about those very things. Some of you in this room are now trusting in Christ and you're ready to be baptized and we want to rejoice and celebrate with you. Whatever God is doing, we want to rejoice, we want to, we want to pray, we want to be there because God calls us to that very thing. Will you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness and your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the way that you show, have shown and continue to show us your kindness and your love, even when we were undeserving. And not that we deserve it now, but Lord, you're still faithful in everything. And you give, and you give. We want to be grateful people. Help us, Lord, to be loyal to you. Help us to be men and women and boys and girls who look to you and give you thanks because you are worthy of all praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and sing?